Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the hour. Diplomatic row erupts between South Africa and Rwanda and AU forms Commission of Inquiry into South Sudan conflict. In economics, Chad oil drilling workers start three-day strike over pay. And in sports news, Nigerian South African soccer legends to square off later this month. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The South African government is under pressure to explain the circumstances surrounding its diplomatic row with Rwanda. The main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, wants the country's international relations minister, Maite Nkwana Mashibane, to urgently address parliament on the apparent row. This follows reports that Rwanda expelled six South African diplomats after South Africa gave three Rwandan officials 72 hours to leave the country. South Africa has still not explained the expulsion of the diplomats. Tepo Bahane reports. The diplomatic fallout between South Africa and Rwanda follows an apparent row over the attempted murder of an exiled former Rwandan general, Faustin Kayumba Nyamwasa in Johannesburg. Rwanda has accused South Africa of harboring terrorists. It's alleged that the three Rwandan diplomats were involved in several assassination attempts on Nyamwasa. The International Relations Department refused to comment on this, but the DA's Justice Dikwede believes the public deserves an explanation from Minister Nkwana Mashawani. We need to know exactly what was going on there and what happened, and uh, we think the minister should give an explanation. Former Rwandan spy chief Patrick Karigea was found dead in a Sentinel hotel on New Year's Eve. He had been strangled. A Burundian diplomat has also been expelled from South Africa. African peacekeepers in Somalia operating with government forces have recaptured several strategic towns from the Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab militia. The African Union's Amisom force says it launched a wide-scale offensive on Thursday against the Islamist fighters in areas near the Ethiopian border. The operation comes in the wake of a surge of attacks in the Somali capital Mogadishu, where Al-Shabaab is fighting to oust the internationally-backed government. Regional government official Abdullahi Yarissou says Amisom and the Somali troops kicked Al-Shabaab out of several key towns, including Wajid and the regional capital, Hudur. Gambia's president, Yaya Jema, says that he wants to implement a policy change that would shift the country's language from English to a local language. He was speaking during the swearing-in of Gambia's new chief justice. Jema says he no longer subscribes to the belief that for one to be a government official, they should speak English. He's made the announcement months after the West African country announced it was withdrawing from the Commonwealth. The health of refugees in South Sudan could become severely compromised unless food is delivered immediately. 
This is according to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. Refugees from Sudan in the Maban camps in Apanal State last received food last month and may only access partial food rations this month. Humanitarian access has been disrupted in South Sudan following internal conflict which erupted in December. Adrian Edwards is from UNHCR. Unless food is delivered immediately, the health and nutrition status of refugees will become severely compromised. We are in the dry season, the traditional hunger gap, when refugees are unable to grow food to supplement the rations they get from our partners at WFP. The problem is not just food shortages, uh, but the safe passage of other humanitarian help too. Investigators say they cannot rule out a hijacking in the case of the missing Malaysian passenger jet. The plane was carrying 239 people. At least two of the passengers on board the Malaysian Airlines flight were found to have travelled on stolen passports. Boats and aircraft are searching for traces of the jet on a remote Vietnamese island after possible debris and an oil slick was spotted floating nearby. Two objects were seen from the air late yesterday off Tu Chu Island. The discovery has helped Vietnamese sea and air teams refine their hunt for the missing plane. Chinese state media this morning lashed out at Malaysian authorities over their handling of the crisis. More than 150 Chinese are among the missing passengers. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Barely three days after Rwanda and South Africa expelled diplomats on other side, some analysts in Rwanda say it's high time the two countries start looking into the issue rather than engaging in altercations. Over the weekend, Rwanda expelled six South African diplomats in an apparent response to expulsion of three Rwandan diplomats by South Africa. From Kigali, Silvanas Karamera reports. Efforts to get the Foreign Affairs Minister, who doubles as the government spokesperson, were futile as she was out of the capital, Kigali, but she had earlier confirmed the expulsion of six South African diplomats in Kigali on her Twitter account in what she referred to as a reciprocal move. The same message also stated that the decision acted upon South African decision to continue harboring dissidents who were accused by Rwanda of terrorist attacks, especially in the capital, Kigali. Following the incident, some Rwandans analysts believe it is high time the two countries engage in discussion over the matter. This is Yoni Kagara and Violet Mahunde. Maybe it's hard to predict what might happen next, but uh, judging from the, the recent developments that we've seen, um, it is worth mentioning that uh, this is something which is actually threatening to spiral into a political uh, uh, standoff between the two countries. But Kigel has made it clear that it has expelled South African diplomats on the basis of reciprocal action against what South Africa had earlier done but the statement also added that uh, South Africa is allegedly harboring what Kigali refers to as dissidents 
do you think this could be the basis on which two countries could probably fall into more and more problems? The move by Rwanda to expel the South African diplomats was seen by some as a, a tit-for-tat move by Rwanda to retaliate to the, the, the expulsion of uh, you know, Rwandan diplomats who were based in South Africa. So uh, we don't know how uh, this whole thing is going to develop in the next days, but probably we're going to see maybe officials from Kigali and uh, from, uh, you know, Johannesburg or Pretoria uh, maybe meeting to try to find a solution to this uh, problem which, uh, you know, could escalate into a political standoff between the two countries. As we have already had, the diplomatic move to expel the South Africans at the embassy here in Kigali was in reciprocity of what the South Africans have done. But I also think that um, in as far as if, okay, if a situation like this can prompt such diplomatic altercations, I think it's high time the two countries try to sort out the issue. To, to sort out the issue. Because I think um, these two countries are better off as friends than enemies. So are you concerned with, uh, with what is likely to happen or what has been happening all along? No, I can't say I'm concerned. Um, because, I mean, through diplomacy again, I believe, I hope that the two countries will come together and, and, and you know, sit down and talk about it. I actually believe there's a way forward because if South Africa has come out clear uh, of the reasons why or the reasons behind them dismissing the Rwandan diplomats and Rwanda has also come clear. So since the two issues are very clear, I think the best way is to just come together, talk about it, resolve the issue, because these two countries are better off friends than enemies. I think for as long as they don't come, they, for as long as they don't sit down to resolve the issue, then of course there's going to be a diplomatic tension that is automatic. The presence of Rwandan opponents in South Africa has never drawn any attention before among Rwandans here, but following the new political deadlock between the two countries. It is gradually becoming a concern among people here. Silvanus Kalimera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. For more on the expulsions, we spoke to Dr. Spamand Lazondi, an analyst with the Institute for Global Dialogue in South Africa. It is very clear that in this particular case, uh, while there has not been very warm, particularly warm relations between the two countries for quite some time, by the way, um, you would remember that uh, about uh, six, seven years ago, the, the South African ambassador was recalled from Rwanda for consultation, which also often uh, means that uh, there is a bit of a difficulty. And uh, what has sparked the latest row is the allegations regarding Rwandan involvement in the killing of Rwandan dissidents who uh, were exiled here in South Africa, especially Patrick uh, Karagea, who was killed here about a month ago and uh, about whom the Rwandan authorities even said he deserved to die because no one dared to challenge Rwanda and leave. And in that context, and then following the investigation that led to the arrest of some people in Mozambique and some people within the country, it is said that this pointed to the involvement of a few diplomatic uh, staff in the Rwandan embassy and South Africa then decided that those who are implicated would be 
accept. But on the side of the Rwandese, it is not clear what investigation necessarily led to them thinking that the six that they needed to expel from Rwanda had a case against them. It seems that it was merely a reprisal. It was really a, an attempt to uh, signal their displeasure about the uh, withdrawal of this. It seems to me that this could have been avoided by the two authorities exchanging information about criminal activities involving staff on both sides and then indicate formally at a ministerial level or a Hasinat uh, officials level that they are going to request that the people be withdrawn rather than for expanding them. Now, Dr. Zondi, is South Africa in its rights, within its rights, in terms of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, alleged, yes, are they within their rights as a country, as a nation, um, with uh, the late Patrick Karagea being uh, uh, executed or murdered on South African soil, an attempt in 2010 uh, on former Rwandan Army Chief uh, General Faustin Kayumba Nyamasa uh, being attacked in 2010, and then another sort of... uh, uh, armed people going to his house uh, to, to look for him uh, just the other day. Now, is South Africa within its rights, especially after Rwanda's uh, response after Karagea was, was murdered on South African soil? Are they, is South Africa within its rights to do what it has done? There's nothing in the international law that precludes a country from uh, asking that diplomatic representation be withdrawn. Both countries are within their rights to ask for withdrawal of the diplomatic mission of the private staff that they feel that they can no longer uh, give hospitality to. Remember, when a diplomatic staff is uh, deployed to a country, a country that is sending usually has to ask the other country whether it is willing to receive the diplomats. They have to accept that the diplomats are there. That's part of the Geneva uh, Protocol. Uh, but what, what we have a gripe with is the manner in which it could it, it was done. And as I suggest, it could have been, I don't know whether that, that was done, because we have not had uh, from the South African authority. South Africa having established all the facts about the involvement of these two officials, it seems to me that they should have dispatched somebody to Kigal and say, this is the information we have, we no longer can accept the presence of these people, these two individuals here, so we request that you withdraw them. In that way, you avoid a, a situation where they feel that they are being sparked, they feel that they are being undermined or, or something like that that leads to retaliation. And similarly, Rwandan side, when they felt they were unhappy with the six officials, it seems to me that the most mature thing to do would have been to take it up with South Africa. They have the diplomatic relations, they have political relations with South Africa, and they could have done a different thing, my view. Now, why has South Africa remained mum about uh, this expulsion? Why are they not saying anything and yeah. seem to be yeah. passing the buck to um, it's a security issue, the Ju- Justice Department is going to respond with regards to this, and uh, nobody is saying anything? Yes, what well, we've heard, what is, um, what is normal under this situation, the conditions, and uh, as we saw in the diplomatic role between South Africa and Nigeria, that South Africa is not going to issue a statement where it needs to explain itself because it perhaps would exacerbate the situation. It did to a cheap sort of The Rwandans are going to respond and then you worsen the situation that the, 
at the public level. What they normally do, you call it, uh, some people call it quiet diplomacy. They're going to engage with the Rwandans uh, silently without the glare of the media and therefore arrest the situation before it gets out of control. And I suspect that is what is going to happen. And what is going to happen, it seems to me, is that they would only issue a statement once they have resolved this. They would be reporting on what has been done and how they have normalized the relationship. Now, in the same breath, the Rwandan foreign minister has taken to social media to put her accusations with regards to South Africa harboring uh, dissidents responsible for terrorist attacks in Rwanda. Now, is she is this the right route to take? Should should she not wait for uh, maybe uh, instructions from Rwanda or for the quiet diplomacy to then come into play and discussions to take place before going into the public space and and putting accusations out there? By nature, mature diplomacy is quiet. By by very nature, you don't speak about things in public before you have resolved them in private. Now, often. In diplomacy, you have statements that are being made after a negotiation process. You don't go on the public realm and say, this is what I'm going to be asking for in the negotiation. There's a sort of a strange diplomacy, uh, which we see mainly with big powers. But normally, normal countries, normal-sized countries, would normally desist from saying anything in public. I think it was ill-advised for the London uh, uh, minister, as it was for President uh, Kagame earlier on, to speak about these things in public because you don't actually assist the, the diplomats who are supposed to manage these things. You actually complicate it. You almost suggest that there are motives behind. You almost suggest that it's honest in the whole process. Dr. Zondi, you mentioned earlier that uh, a couple of years ago the relations between South Africa and Rwanda were not at um, its best. How serious is this fallout now and what are the implications for both countries? It simply says to the nations that have not not actually been warm. It is now even said that South Africa's involvement in the Great Lakes generally is is irritating Rwanda. And and it feels that South Africa is taking a position that may actually be closer to the Congo. Of course, the conflict is happening in the Congo. The incursions are happening in the Congo. So South Africa needed to seek a way to seek help, find a solution to the situation in the It is said that the Rwandans are unhappy about it. Now it is actually said that South Africa's involvement in the attacks on the M23 rebels, which are said to be supported by Rwanda, has also annoyed people in Rwanda. It has certainly annoyed some Rwandan analysts that have spoken up about it, but it's not known for sure whether the government is also factoring that. So there are deep questions that they need to deal with. Rwanda is going through a transition. It is going to have to go through a transition beyond Kagame. It is done very, very well. It is very stable. So you can understand some of the fears they have in the region where they are. Uh, but similarly, South Africa has interests. And these interests, when they are divergent, are actually brought closer to each other through a process of dialogue and diplomacy. And that is done quietly somewhere uh, outside the glare of the media and public opinion. Now, Dr. Zondi, South Africa has also expelled Burundian diplomat Jean-Claude Sindayigaya from Pretoria. Do we know the reasons behind his expulsion? We, we really do not know because we, we haven't seen a statement and as we've heard, the, the, the Burundian uh, foreign minister himself has said he's not uh, got the communication explaining the reasons uh, for, for the expulsion. But as I said, nothing in the international law precludes a country from asking for the withdrawal or expelling a, a diplomat that it feels 
is okay. What we is not okay. What you've heard in the media is that uh, the, the third diplomat has been acting in a manner that jeopardizes the country's national security. But uh, it, it, it is anyone's guess what that means, and uh, we have to wait for the statement from the South African government explaining what that actually means. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That was Dr. Spamandla Zondi, director of South African-based think tank, the Institute for Global Dialogue, talking to us earlier. Now, South Africa has expelled three Rwandan diplomats and a Burundian, and Rwanda has also ordered out six South African envoys in retaliation. Our question this morning is, what is your view on these expulsions? For comments, please email us on info at channelafrica.org, send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905, or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's ruling ANC says it's important that South Africans are aware of the struggle of the Palestinians at the hand of the Israeli government. The ruling party joined more than 75 other organizations including trade unions, student bodies and civil society movements that have endorsed the international Israeli apartheid week in South Africa. Wisani Makubele reports. The Israeli Apartheid Week is aimed at creating awareness among South Africans about the plight of the Palestinians. Palestinians have been suffering repression from the Israeli government for decades. Johannesburg Mayor Pax Dau, who represented the ANC at the event, says the ruling party is fully behind the campaign. We believe that in fact the Israeli Apartheid Week is one of those platforms that enables us to create a consciousness amongst the people of South Africa, then mobilize the people of South Africa as part of an international solidarity campaign that seeks to facilitate that the Palestinian question is addressed and that a just solution is arrived at. Palestinian ambassador to South Africa, Hafiz Nofal, says his people have been waging the struggle for freedom for 67 years. Palestinians are under the regime that can possibly be described as a worse than the South African apartheid regime. The leadership of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian people would like to thank the South African leadership, organization and people for all support, for all the support. We highly appreciate your effort and support. Thank you. Israeli author Miko Peled, whose father was a prominent soldier in the Israeli military, says he cannot mention Israel without mentioning South Africa. Peled says the fight against apartheid in South Africa gives hope to the people of Palestine. If we were to summarize what we, we should expect from governments around the world is to send home the Israeli ambassadors, to bring back their own ambassadors from Tel Aviv, 
Until such time, the three conditions are met. The lifting of the siege on Gaza, release of all Palestinian prisoners, political prisoners, and setting of a date for free and fair one-person, one-vote elections that will allow the creation of a real democracy in Palestine. This was Ilan Solidarity Networks like Ilu Kele says they came to show solidarity with the Palestinians. We know that solidarity knows no boundaries, as said by the late uh, president of Mozambique, Mr. Samora Mashel. Indeed, our, our coming here is to provide that international solidarity and to say we do not need any invitation to come here. We are always available with the people of Palestine or any injustice anywhere in the world. As we, you know that the people of Swaziland also themselves are beneficial of solidarity, in particular from the people of South Africa in their millions. Kosatu's second deputy president, Zingis Walosi, likened the struggle by Palestinians at the hands of Israelis to the apartheid days in South Africa. She says this form of apartheid must be defeated in Israel, just as it was overcome in South Africa. It has become a political ritual and fundamental task for Kosatu and workers in general to honor with dignity and renewed passion the International Week Against Apartheid by Israel. In the words of our stalwart and icon, former President Nelson Mandela, I quote when he said, We know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the people of Palestine. SACP Central Committee member Charles Sitsubi says not only do they have an obligation to support Palestine, but also to translate that support to action should the need arise. Humanity wants peace. There is no nation that can stay in a perpetual state of war. But we go further to state that every concept that we apply, peace in this case, cannot just be dangled around without definition. We say we want just peace for the people of Palestine. In his message of support, Archbishop Desmond Tutu says those who turn a blind eye to injustice perpetuate injustice. Amwisani Makubele in Johannesburg. The African Union has formed a commission of inquiry into the ongoing armed conflict in South Sudan. The commission will be composed of five members, all of whom have experience in continental aspects of human rights and reconciliation. Channel Africa's Coletta Wanjohi reports. Conflict ensued in South Sudan in December 2013 when the former Vice President Riek Mashar led a rebellion against the current regime of President Salva Kiir. The conflict has so far turned violent with both sides engaging each other militarily as they struggle to acquire as much occupation of important areas in the country as possible. The signed cessation of hostilities agreement between the warring factions in January in Addis Ababa has not been honored as fighting continues. Now, the African Union has set up a commission of inquiry to look into the ongoing violation of human rights in South Sudan. The chairperson of African Union, Dr. Dlamini Zuma, explains the mandate of the commission. Investigate the human rights violations and other abuses committed during the armed conflict in South Sudan. Make recommendations on the best way and means to ensure accountability, reconciliation, and healing among all South Sudanese communities. That's what is guiding us. That's the, 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 the Commission of Inquiry will use their discretion to do their work. I'm not going to sit here and say, investigate this, don't investigate that, investigate this. These are very experienced people, it's a solid, team and they'll they'll know what to do. 
Dr. Zuma says that the Commission of Inquiry will include former Nigerian President Olesugun Obasanjo, a justice from the African Court of Human Rights, a member of the Human Rights Commission, and another one to represent the civil society organizations. Well, the headquarters for it is here, but of course they will have to go on the field from time to time. So they will be both here and they'll have to go to South Sudan as well. And we will fund, and if other people want to help, they can help, but we will start with our own funds. The Commission of Inquiry will then be expected to make recommendations on what is the best way forward to save the world's youngest nation from degenerating into a conflict society whose recovery will be complicated in the future. Kuletonjoy, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta says together with his deputy they will take a 20% pay cut while his ministers will each take a 10% cut in a bid to reduce the country's public sector wage bill. The move comes as the Kenyatta administration struggles with a bloated public service workforce that has taken up much of the country's revenue. Sarah Kimani reports from the capital, Nairobi. Kenyatta told the media after a three-day cabinet retreat that his government was keen on cutting costs in a bid to redirect much of the revenue to services and not salaries. Mindful of the rising public wage bill, my deputy and I will take a 20% pay cut and our cabinet secretaries and principal secretaries have accepted a 10% pay cut with immediate effect. He says foreign travel by government officials will be reduced and only necessary trips will be funded. Prudent governance structures and rules will be enforced. Wastage in my government will significantly be reduced. My government intends to rationalize the recurrent expenditure that add no value to public service delivery. Kenyatta has previously warned that a huge public sector wage bill is unsustainable. At 458 billion shillings, that is about $5 billion, Kenya's public sector wage bill stands at a high of 12% of the GDP, compared to globally recommended average of 7%. Media reports in Kenya have also indicated that there is likely to be massive job cuts with an estimated 100,000 public officers likely to be sent home as the government embarks on an ambitious exercise to clean up its payroll and control the growing wage bill. That report by Sarah Kimani. It's exactly 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning. The South African government is under pressure to explain the circumstances surrounding its diplomatic row with Rwanda. African peacekeepers in Somalia operating with government forces recapture several strategic towns from the Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab militia. And investigators say they cannot rule out a hijacking in the case of the missing Malaysian passenger jet. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. The murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius enters its second week today with the continuation of the evidence of a security guard. Peter Baba was the shift manager during the early morning hours when Pistorius shot and killed his girlfriend Reva Stenkamp last year. Pistorius pleaded not guilty in the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria to a charge of murder as well as three gun-related charges. Lila Machnas reports. Pistorius' advocate, Barry Roo, will continue with his cross-examination of Peter Baba. Baba testified last week that he was on patrol the evening of 13 and 14 February last year. He passed Pistorius' house after 2 in the morning and didn't hear anything out of the ordinary. Just after 3, he received calls from neighbours saying they heard gunshots. He went to Pistorius' house and phoned him from outside his house asking if there was a problem. Mr. Pistorius said to me, security, everything is fine. That's when I realized that Mr. Pistorius was crying. That's when I said to Jacobs, not everything was in order, as Mr. Pistorius was telling me. Rui is expected to continue with his cross-examination, trying to determine the timeline of the events. The first week of the trial, the state called neighbors who testified to what they heard the evening Stienkamp was shot. Three of the neighbors testified they were woken up by loud male and female voices. Then they heard gunshots and the female voice faded before a man called for help. They testified the women's screams were anxious, petrified and fearful. Another neighbor who lives only 72 meters from Pistorius testified he was woken up by what sounded like gunshots, heard male and female voices, three more sounds that sounded like gunshots, and then a man screaming for help. Dr. Johan Stipp also testified he was one of the first people on the crime scene and testified that Pistorius was beside himself with grief. He said he shot her, he thought she was a burglar, and he shot her. Stipp also testified that Pistorius pleaded with God to save Steenkamp's life. Rupp put it to all the neighbors that they actually didn't hear gunshots but heard Pistorius breaking down the toilet door with a cricket bat. He says it can also sound like gunshots. Rupp also put it to the witnesses that they only heard Pistorius scream and not a woman. Rupp says when Pistorius is anxious, the pitch of his voice rises and it sounds like a woman. Pistorius' former girlfriend, Samantha Taylor, denied that Pistorius sounds like a woman when he screams. It's his case, and he had it tested, according to him, that if he screams and he's really anxious, he sounds like a woman. That is not true. He sounds like a man. Now, have you heard him scream? Yes. Once or more? A few times, my lady. But I think they would say that only when he's really anxious. When he screamed, did you see him being anxious? I've seen him be very anxious. And he would shout at him? At myself. And did it sound like the shouts or screams of a woman? It sounded like a man, my lady. Taylor and a former friend of Pistorius, Kevin Larina, testified about incidents where Pistorius fired a shot in a restaurant as well as a shot through the sunroof of a car. Pistorius denied he shot a gun through the sunroof of the car and says the gun went off by accident in the restaurant. National Prosecuting Authority spokesperson Nadine Klubu says they divided the state witnesses in three categories. We have 107 witnesses, as you know, 
that uh, we have uh, categorized in, in terms of three categories. The first being the lay witnesses, and then you have your formal witnesses, and of course you'll have your experts. So what we're busy with now, of course, is the lay witnesses, as you, you saw today. And um, as soon as we're done with those witnesses, we expect to call your formal uh, uh, witnesses, and of course uh, deal with our expert witnesses at the end. The trial will resume at 9.30 today. Lila Magnus, Pretoria. Today, in 1995, the financial rand used as a parallel currency to the commercial rand in South Africa was abolished. The currency was introduced in the 1960s and only widely used in the 1980s and 1990s. Let's listen to South Africa's finance minister at the time, Chris Liebenberg. An important milestone in the financial strategy was reached two days ago with the abolition of the financial rand. The step was made possible by the improvement in the underlying financial situation, including the increase in our foreign exchange reserves and holdings. The continued convergence between the commercial and the financial exchange rates, the reacceptance of South Africa as a full member of the international community, and good progress with political and economic reform in this country. Whilst very early, to pass judgment, we are nevertheless very satisfied with the performance of our unitary RAND over the past few days. How do we see the prospects for 1995? At this stage, with continued good international economic growth prospects, the economic upswing in South Africa is fairly well established and broadly based. With the exception of the agricultural sector possibly, influenced by adverse climatic conditions, A common pill used in the treatment of HIV-AIDS has been found to completely cure cervical cancer in a period of three months. According to medical researchers in Nairobi and Kenya, the revelation is a major breakthrough in the fight against cancer globally. Mwaiki Konyo reports from Nairobi. Addressing a press conference here in Nairobi, doctors at the Kenyatta National Hospitals and medical researchers from the University of Manchester in Britain said the discovery could help save the lives of millions of women who die of cervical cancer all over the world. Dr. Innocent Orara Maranga, a consultant at the Kenyatta National Hospital who was involved in the study led by Professor Ian Hampson, of the University of Manchester, United Kingdom, said they had screened 220 women at the hospital and finally settled on 40 women patients who had cervical cancer. Dr. Marango of Kenyatta National Hospital. Studies done in the laboratory had indeed shown quite clearly that the cells which have been infected with HPV, which are on the pathway to become cancer, can be killed if they are subjected to this medicine. According to the World Health Organization, Cervical cancer ranks as the second most common cancer among women in Kenya. Mortality rate of cervical cancer are high due to lack of awareness, lack of diagnostic facilities, high cost of treatment, and high poverty index. Now what causes cancer? Uh, I would, let me address myself to cancer of the cervix because that's what we are talking about. Mm -hmm. It's caused by a virus. That virus is called human papilloma virus. That virus is actually transmitted. And when somebody gets it, and that's the tragedy about it, um, it's the commonest sexually transmitted infection of virus in the world. And when somebody gets it, there are no symptoms at all. 
it's not like there's anything that a woman would know or uh, the partner would know that actually there is an infection of this virus. Mm -hmm. And it takes many years for this infection to go from normal cells, to change them from normal cells to abnormal cells, and then eventually to go to cancer. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we are saying uh, it's, it's an infection which is... Uh, doesn't have any symptoms mm -hmm. it takes years to develop mm -hmm. and because of that even mm -hmm. when somebody has the early stages of the cancer mm -hmm. uh, you find that uh, there are no symptoms by the time the symptoms come it's a bit too late it's so right. that's why we stress that women need to go for screening so despite this medication which has come up mm -hmm. we are still stressing that women should and must go for screening screening is extremely important. extremely important this medication does not preclude uh -huh. women from going for uh, screening and it also we have to encourage people we have to encourage women we have to encourage girls to go for immunization to mm -hmm. the vaccine yeah. there is a vaccine which is available mm -hmm. for this virus but let me add again that mm -hmm. if somebody goes for the vaccination mm -hmm. it does not mean that she should not go for screening mm -hmm. because what is covered in the vaccine does not 100 percent prevent mm -hmm. uh, cervical cancer and according to medical experts in nairobi the new discovery is good news for cervical cancer patients in the world. It is expecting to change the fate of cervical cancer patients. The researchers will now move to phase 2 and phase 3 of their trials, which will require at least 5,000 women patients. And if all goes well, they promise to have the medicine in the market within the next 7 years' time. They are also preparing to publish their findings in the Lancet Oncology Journal. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konya in Nairobi. Kenya's First Lady Margaret Kenyatta has completed the inaugural First Lady Half Marathon, becoming Africa's First Lady to do so. The Kenyan First Lady has announced that she will participate in next month's London Marathon. James Manula covered the Nairobi Marathon for us and filed this report. Kenya's first lady, Margaret Kenyatta, made history on Sunday when she completed a 21-kilometer race in the capital Nairobi. The race was held for the first time to raise funds that will decrease maternal deaths and child mortality in Kenya. This is how thousands of people at the venue of the marathon reacted after the first lady crossed the finish line. <laughs> Speaking shortly after crossing the finish line, the first lady said, We must run until there are no more preventable deaths. Thank you all for being with us from the start and for supporting me. Now I can boldly say, London, here we come. Kenyan first lady's remarks, London, here we come, refer to the London Marathon to be held on the 13th of next month. She has already confirmed that she will participate in the London Marathon. In the Nairobi Marathon, the Kenyan First Lady was among more than 30,000 runners that took part in the inaugural event. She clocked three hours and 46 minutes after concluding the race and received by President Kenyatta. Speaking at the colorful ceremony to award winners of the event, Athletics Kenya Chairman Isaiah Kiplagat quipped that he has been organizing athletic competitions and even if he competed, he was sure 
of not concluding a 21-kilometer race. It is good that we organize as many events as possible to bring all the Kenyans together because it is what we need. Because when Kenyans come like this together, we create peace and tranquility in this country. And we also make all the young, the young people of this country to participate and know that being together is what is important for them and for us all. Today, we in Athletics Kenya, we are so grateful to be participants in the first ever First Ladies Half Marathon, which was organized to raise funds, to, of course, to help the children that would have died before they reach or they attain their maturity age. The First Lady's mission in participating in the marathon is to raise 2.3 million US dollars, part of 5.6 million dollars that she targets for decreasing maternal deaths and child mortality in Kenya. I also caught up with Francis Nyatome, welfare chief for Athletics Kenya. Nyatome sees the First Lady's participation in the marathon as indeed historic. This is the first time we have had First Lady uh, coming up with an idea of having a, a, a road race across country. And um, it is uh, very, very, very good because what she's aiming at will help the mothers of Kenya in the near future. And we hope she will continue assisting our mothers, our parents, so that they can survive conditions that are unbeatable. Looking at her participation, do you think from your old experience, is she the first lady to take part in a, an athletic event? Yeah, it's, this is the first lady to have taken uh, part in an athletics running, and uh, we hope that she will encourage other ladies to come up with uh, other activities other than uh, running. We can have a, a race walking, we can have a cross country, we can have um, a track and field. And uh, this is a very good start for, for her, and we encourage her to continue. I hope by next year again you see the participation will be too large. Look at the participation today. It's extremely, extremely impressive. You have been running over the years. What does the participation of the First Lady mean to you as a veteran runner? First and foremost, I congratulate our First Lady for this project. It has started it and uh, we are looking forward for next uh, edition. A veteran runner, what would you tell First Ladies in Africa what to do in order to follow her footsteps? Uh, what I will advise or to say to First Ladies in Africa, follow the steps of First Lady Margaret Kenyatta, what she has done today. She has shown that she is a mother, she is somebody who cares, and uh, she is somebody who can uh, do wonders. So we are telling our First Ladies in Africa, you are welcome and uh, do something for our needy children, our needy mothers, and uh, we are there for everything. That was Rosita Tamuya, retired Kenyan long-distance runner. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. We sign a good morning. ESCOM needs to find other sources of, of electricity in South Africa. They need to come up with another option or other options. What's going to happen? Load shedding? Is it or is it not? 
Yeah, load shedding. Yeah, we were staring at it. Hey? Um, and uh, com- this coming winter, I think it's going to be more. People should prepare themselves for uh, more load shedding. And also it has a big impact on the economy. We remember mm. 2008, mm. it was uh, load shedding and then it was the start of the uh, a global financial crisis. The mm. meltdown started around there. So it was like twin uh, economic uh, problems for South Africa. You know, it's 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 uh, then comes into question the fact that uh, as South Africa, as ESCOM was supplying other countries, neighboring countries with mm. electricity. Mm. How does that work? How do they justify that? Yeah, that that has been uh, South Africa's way of doing things. You know, we we supply others, but we we don't have. You know, like with maize, we talked about maize. Mm. There will be maize shortage, mm. but we also do supply our. Swaziland, we supply to Lesotho, we supply to other southern African countries which uh, we don't have uh, maize storages, you know, the places to store their maize. So the same with electricity, we're supplying to Botswana. Mm. And also, the government uh, still has to explain why at those times they gave uh, bigger uh, electricity consum- consumers, like companies, mm. from outside uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, cards in terms mm. of how much they can pay. The rates were much cheaper. Companies like uh, BHP Billiton, mm. and then uh, it gets to be more expensive for the people who can afford, and the companies which can afford, they are using it for business and industry. They they get cheaper rates. It's mm. something which also should be looked at to make sure that you know the bigger industry must pay more for electricity because they they're making profit they're using it for profit people are just using it to cook Mm. and and to to survive survive. and to live Mm. yes Mm. well give us an update maybe we need to go back to the french who helped us in the last uh in 2008 with the the electricity issue so maybe it's time to (laughs) re-look at that and 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 ask them to come and help again give us an update Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has announced that he and Deputy President William Ruto will be taking a 20% pay cut while Cabinet Minister's salaries will be slashed by 10%. Kenyatta wants to cut down government's ballooning public wage bill. The pay cuts will take effect immediately. Foreign travel for top-ranking government officials will be limited to only the most essential trips. According to Kenyatta, the government is spending close to $4.6 billion every year in salaries, leaving only two point three billion dollars for development and around uh, 1,600 workers in Chad's oil exploration sector are on a three-day strike after rejecting a pay offer from two Chinese firms employing them. The strike which started yesterday has not affected the country's 120,000 barrel per day output. It is the second strike this year declared by workers at the Great Wall Drilling Corporation which is a subsidiary of China National Petroleum Corporation.
And South Africa's Energy Minister Ben Martin says the country is racing against time in finding alternative energy sources to feed its growing energy demand. Martin says South Africa's development trajectory has to look beyond coal if it's to be sustainable. Load sharing was introduced again for the first time in six years amid tight power supply margins. Power utility ESCOM says the grid has stabilized but remains vulnerable. Martin says rejected reports that South Africa exports all its good quality coal. The renewable energy projects will assist the country to obviate load shedding. Our policy is to use coal in terms of what the respective quantities and qualities are for best purpose. So some of the coal will be exported but also some of the high-quality coal will be utilized in order to further and meet the needs of our country. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Wisani. Msibudi Makura. Cricket, the Pro Tiers in Australia, T20 was washed out. Rained out, rather. That's the right word. Rained out. Are we going to see <laughs> improved performance by South Africa? Oh, well, we'll see about that, Judy. The second um, TT20 series um, takes place on in Durban on Wednesday. Hopefully, um, they will give up a, a much be- better impro- imp- improved performance. And on Friday, it's another one. So it's for the taking for the Proteus. Okay, let's hope it's not going to rain. We hope so as well. <laughs> okay, give us an update. Well, thank you so much, Lulu. Starting off with soccer news, Bafana Bafana class of 1996 will play against their Nigerian counterparts in an international friendly in Kano, Nigeria on the 30th of March. The two sides want to settle an 18-year-old score where some of the Nigerians still do not recognize the success of Bafana Bafana in winning the African Cup of Nations tournament in their absence. Nigeria insist if they have taken part in their tournament in South Africa, they would have defended their title. The Super Eagles, who were in top form at that time did not take part after the then leader General Sani Abachi ordered the execution of activist Ken Saru Wiwa. Bafana went on to defeat Tunisia 2-0 to win the Maiden African Cup of Nations tournament at the FNB Stadium. Now, Benny McCarthy, Dr. Kumalo, Linda Butelezi, John Moedi and Eric Tinkler are some of the South African legends set to do duty. The full squad will be announced later this week. The Nigerian lineup will include JJ Okoja, Anu Kwanu, Stephen Keshim, Daniel Amugaji and Emmanuel Amunike. And still on soccer news, three goals from Knowledge Mosona gave South African sidecars achieves an emphatic 3-0 first round second leg CAF Champions League victory over Mozambique side Liga Mosunyuma in Maputo on Saturday. Cars achieves progress to the next round of the competition on a 7-0 aggregate scoreline.
Meanwhile, another South African side, Supersport United, conceded a late goal as the South Africans were held to a 2-0 draw by Kenyan side FC Leopards in the first round second leg CAF Confederations Cup clash at the Nayo National Stadium in Nairobi, Kenya on Sunday afternoon. But the draw was enough to see progression into the second round for the South Africans who advanced on a 4-2 on aggregate following a 2-0 win during the first leg in Pretoria next weekend. And on to athletics news, Ethiopia finished a credible third position behind the United States of America and Russia at the end of the three-day IAAF World Endo Athletics Championship in Spotop, Poland on Sunday. Athletes from Kenya, Ivory Coast, Morocco and Djibouti were also on the spotlight winning medals in their respective events. Gesham Yati found this report. Ethiopia was the best team from the continent, winning a total of five medals, two gold, two silver and one bronze. Gold medalists were Mohamed Aman in the men's 800 meters and Genezebe Dibaba in the women's 3,000 meters. The men's and women's 1,500 meters had Amani Wote and Aksumawite Mbaye taking silver medals, while Dijen Kapromeskel picked bronze in the men's 3,000 meters. The powerful Americans topped the medal standings with a total of 12. Russia finished second with five medals, the same number as Ethiopia, but slightly superior with three gold, one better than the Ethiopians. Kenya were not at their usual best, winning only two medals, one gold medal for Kalipundigu. Well, those are your sports news at this hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping the top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Diplomatic row erupts between South Africa and Rwanda and AU forms Commission of Inquiry into South Sudan conflict. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za. Follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One or send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Mozart with the party after.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa.